Welcome to Creative Distillation, where we distill entrepreneurship research into actionable insights. My name is Jeff York, Research Director at the Deming Center for Entrepreneurship at the University of Colorado Boulder Lead School of Business. Joined as always with my co-host, Brad Warner. I'm the Teaching Director at the Deming Center at the Lead School of Business, and I'm really happy to be here with you today, Jeff. Uh, this is great. We're outside. This is cool. We are on Brad's back porch. So if you hear dogs barking for attention or lawnmowers going or birds flying by, it is a lovely day here in Boulder, Colorado. And, uh, you know, we're getting closer to being back to doing what we originally started doing this yeah. podcast. Like we would actually go into breweries and distilleries and drag people along with us and uh, sit there for a really long time and enjoy the ambience and talk to entrepreneurs. So we still have a remote guest today. Uh, we're really excited to welcome Robert Everhart, Bob, as he goes by. Uh, mm -hmm. Bob is the Director for Research on Entrepreneurship and Society at the Graduate School of Business at Stanford University. Thanks for joining us today, Bob. Hey, thanks. This is great. And we have lovely weather here in Palo Alto. And of course, I'm inside, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are outside. So, well, it's so, great to be Bob, here. Tell me about, like, I've never known anyone with the, the title of Director of Research on Entrepreneurship and Society. That's pretty interesting. What, what's that all about? Well, thank you. It was a title that took some effort to get done. But what it is, is uh, we have a project funded over a million dollars to investigate. And it's fun. we're funded by venture capital, believe it or not. Um, really? Yeah, to investigate how entrepreneurship is changing society. And the way we kind of talk about it, and let's use your dog example. <laughs> we, got, we, we might as well, because like, as soon as you yeah, start like a dog there. Every yeah. dog, every yeah. dog in yeah, like a 20-mile radius has like gone nuts. Right. And what the dog is doing is illustrating what we talk about. Because when we first started investigating in entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship was like a puppy. You know, yeah. we were trying to figure out how to feed it, what foods were good for it, how often it needed to be walked, all those kinds of things. We tried to figure out how to get this puppy to grow into a nice dog. Yeah, and how to train yeah, it. entrepreneurship what, itself or the research? Right, entrepreneurship. The dog is entrepreneurship. And we okay, studied cool. how to make that dog grow and how to make that dog prosper. That's been successful. You should see his new family. Oh, okay. We have a dog the size of a bear with right. us. <laughs> but nowadays, right, that dog's going to be a big thing. And it's like woof, woof. And it comes in and it cracks mud on my clean couch. And it does wrong things in the bedroom. Yeah, see, exactly. And now we got to deal with it. And that's precisely what we're doing at this project. We're no longer discovering how to grow this puppy entrepreneurship. We're trying to figure out now that it's a big dog, how do we deal and understand with its effects on us? And that's exactly what we're doing. Cool. So the effects of entrepreneurship on society. Right. And I think that's an interesting lens because like, you know, we do a lot of stuff about society's effects on entrepreneurship. At least, I mean, I've written a bunch of papers on that. Yes, I know you, you and me, of your colleagues have written about those kinds mm -hmm. of topics. Mm -hmm. so you guys are kind of turning that around saying, what is entrepreneurship's effect on society itself? Right. You see that in like faculty meetings. You've been in one where they, I'm sure you have, I have, where they say, hey, we need to be more entrepreneurial around here. Yeah. And you know, they're not saying you should all go out and start companies. What no. they're saying is that your budget's just been cut and you're more likely to be fired. <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and the whole point is they're taking this word entrepreneurship and yeah. using it yeah. to put a good patina yeah. and make you say, okay, I need to be self-reliant. 
Yeah, yeah. yeah. This is so like they, when states cut funding to universities, which never happens here in Colorado, thankfully. I know, yeah. Generously <laughs> supported by the state. They're like, you know, you, you should be more entrepreneurial as a university, but don't raise tuition because entrepreneurs never raise their prices for anything. Right, you would never, never. Yeah, that's right. Work, right. Yeah, but they well, bring I, in 20, 20 consultants from McKinsey that are, you know, 16 <laughs> years old. That's right. Yeah. Who have never been entrepreneurs themselves, by the way. For sure. And so <laughs> that's part of what we're trying to, to understand better. There are lots of things going on. For example, there are mythologies about entrepreneurship that are not really understandable until you think carefully. For example, you'll hear this a lot, that it's okay to fail and that every successful entrepreneur has had a lot of failures behind them. First of all, it's just not true. Okay. <laughs> the research itself just shows that the thing that predicts a success is a past success. And the thing that predicts a failure is a past failure. But what this does is it allows us to communicate a message that people should be comfortable with a string of failures. Mm -hmm. We're saying that if you look at your past life and see a string of failures, now you can be comfortable that you're on the path <laughs> of success. That's what's going on, you know, and that's, that's a change in the way we do stuff. That's a great, you know, that's a, uh, I mean, that's a pretty. I, I look at it differently. Yeah, I, yeah, go ahead, go I, so on. so I, I look at it as micro failures, right? If, if you have a string right, of, right. of business failures, that's one thing. Yeah. But when we're talking about exploring markets and, and talking to customers and those types of tests, yeah. that's a different type of failure. No, exactly. If you have a micro failure, like you have a product or a rev, right. rev that's fine. I mean, that, there, like you try something, you find it doesn't work and you change yeah, it. Yeah, there's before, of before, yeah. There's tons before Before you remortgage your house and like. <laughs> right, yeah, no, no, exactly. Or before. That's you, what I yeah. mean by fail fast. Right. Yeah. right. But it's, it's more that's just communicating stuff. And it's the same thing when we tell Uber drivers that they're entrepreneurs. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Right. Congratulations. Yeah. You're an entrepreneur now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so. Like those guys on Shark Tank. Yeah. Right. And that allows us to. It, take, it means take two cases of ramen and see if you can live for four months. <laughs> that's it, man. I mean, that's right? totally it because that's what we're telling them, right? The reason you're being paid below minimum wage right. is because not because you're not an employee, you're an entrepreneur. And if you work hard enough and are lucky enough, you will make a lot of money. You'll, you'll so end up driving Lady Gaga somewhere. Right, exactly, exactly right. <laughs> you, know, you know, and that's to me, that's, that's how the changes that are happening in society are profound. We used to, in the 1960s, for example, we would justify CEO pay on the basis of their organizational ability, that they were great organizers. They were cool organization people. You know, now we justify high pay on the basis of the risk they took. So we've replaced an organizational corporate idea with an entrepreneurship idea. Yeah. And, you know, so it's an interesting way the world is changing. So let, let me talk about the gig economy just for a second. And I'm sure. thinking of Palo Alto. For instance, Uber and Lyft, kind of our earlier examples. They've just created business models to work around minimum wage issues, right? Oh, and uh, child labor issues. You don't have to worry about the minimum age laws. You just have to be old enough to have a driver's license. Some of this is insane to me. No, it is. That's what we worried about. In fact, we just, a uh, paper that um, just is going to come out in an RSO volume. We start with that conundrum. Proposition 22 here in California passed, and it basically legalized, if you will, the ability of companies to hire contractors, even if they're working basically full-time for them, and not pay them benefits, not be subject to minimum wage laws and other things. Right. And while we expected the Chamber of Commerce to support that, 
and we expected Uber and Lyft to support it, and they did with a lot of money. We did not expect the NAACP to support it, who'd usually been allied with workers and unions, and we certainly didn't expect 62% of Uber drivers to vote in favor of it. Hmm. We're starting to get in the paper, and you know right. we have a really specific format we do on the <laughs> podcast, Bob, and you're just already throwing a monkey wrench in the oh, whole I'm thing. Oh, I'm sorry about that. What are we supposed to be like doing I knew now? you would, uh, being yeah. the rebellious guy you are. I um, am. We, we need to drink something. Oh, so, let's drink. All right, let's have a Here drink. Now, Bob, why are we drinking Japanese whiskey this week? <laughs> ah, well, it's available. And B, <laughs> 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 I mean, uh, no, B the truth is, and I, I assume you're asking me about my background. Well, I'm just, I mean, I, I know a little bit. The answer about- is I, I don't, though, Bob. I know that there's something oh, okay. with Japan. I started, uh, before I was an academic, I started a liquor distributorship in Japan. And I was the first foreigner ever to get a wholesale liquor license in Japan. Cool. Um, which I thought was really, really cool. I didn't and even work in Japan and studied Japan. But I, didn't I worked in Japan. I, I'd grown up around Japan. My parents were married in Japan. There was Japan always around my house. And also I'm at an age where when I was in graduate school and late um, undergraduate school, uh, Japan was like China is now. Everybody's worried about it. It was going to take yeah, over. It was, you know, we, you know, all that stuff. Uh, yeah. And so a lot of us, and I was one of those General Motors paid me to learn Japanese language. That's um, cool. Yeah. And I worked, when I worked for Applied Materials, they sent me over to deal with the Japanese vendors. And I was made president of a company in Silicon Valley of their Japan subsidiary. And I, anyway, while I was there, I just started a company because I was bored being a corporate guy and uh, started a venture capital funded company by Japanese venture capitalists in Japan. We grew and grew. We became the largest independent wine distributor in Japan, selling mostly California wines on, I think, a cool technical inventory model, basically. And uh, we did well. And I sold the company in 2007, bought a Jaguar and a house in Tahoe, you know, and... uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well done, Bob. Right. <laughs> Way to help society, buddy. Right. So I guess we're here drinking Japanese whiskey because, yeah. hey, you know, we couldn't find Japanese wine. <laughs> well, I actually, I said, I texted Brad and said, well, Bob suggested we could either have sake. Am I pronouncing that right? Right, sake. My daughter, my daughter admonished me if I was going to be on a podcast, I better not go there and say, we're going to drink sake, y'all. Right, um, yeah, you don't want to do that, sir. Yeah. But also, it is also a mistake because the actual word for it is Nihon Shu. Sake really? is just means it's a generalized alcoholic beverage. Right. But anyway, the rice wine is Nihon Shu. So we have a single malt Japanese whiskey called the Matsui. It is a peated single malt, apparently won a bunch of awards, which is why I bought it. It was also the most expensive one at our local liquor store. And knowing you, Bob, I was like, well, which one will Bob pick? The most expensive one, probably, knowing him. Uh, are you familiar with what we're drinking at all? I, know I am. It's a wonderful uh, scotch. I mean, it's just it's not very commonly seen in the United States. So it's actually impressive that you have it. I'm drinking well, we this. We live in Boulder, Colorado, Bob. Yeah, yeah. So, well, I'm drinking know, this. I suppose being home of the Deming Center for Entrepreneurship also has an amazing array of fine liquors. Well, there you go. Of course, because you're studying entrepreneurship and you need to be drunk. But <laughs> this Hibiki is interesting because, number one, it's what I told you to get. And right. B, 
<laughs> I this is also Pete. Yeah, I, I, I tried to get it. Yeah, we can't okay. find that I, one. I totally believe you. And but this is also peated. Okay. Um, and I think it's the oldest scotch made in Japan. I went to the distillery once, and it was amazingly technical. Really? Let's give it a shot. Well, so from this one, what I'm noticing mm -hmm. different than I mean, so my go-to is like Talisker, like. Uh -huh. I'm going to drink whiskey. And um, mm -hmm. this is a lighter whiskey, I'm noticing for sure, than most of the Scottish whiskey. I agree. This is this one I'm having is not as peated, if you will. It doesn't give you this direct smell of that transports you to the fens of Scotland. No, you I know, mean, it's just not like burning you know, peat. a campfire. So, yeah, this is more a refined background of peat. It is really good. Mm -hmm. Got a, almost a honey like sweetness to it. Mine does too. It's all the caramel coming out of the cask, but of course, they design that in Japan. I mean, in in Scotland, it just uses the barrels that are out and back. Right. You know? <laughs> I, On Japan, they only funny. use the barrel that they test and comes out in specifications. You know, and has the right amount of char and the right you know, optical properties and all that kind of stuff. So yeah. you get a consistent product, but you get a very sweet and actually a very delicious product to drink. Mm -hmm. So when, when you were starting your business, Bob, in Japan all those years ago, was there such a thing as Japanese whiskey at that time? Is it, is yes, Japanese whiskey is around for 100 years, and they had won awards by that point. Okay. But it's just their approach that I saw, and no doubt there are craft makers somewhere in Japan, but the approach that I saw, both by the way they made the scotch and the way they made the wine, was almost as you'd expect them to do it. You know, it's a very precise. There were charts all over the brewery about, you know, just yeah. in time. Yeah, I was wondering. I was, I was just thinking, like, <laughs> yeah, well, different chemical trends and, you know, all this other kind of thing. And they were made carefully and they had meetings every day, you know, to discuss the production and, you know, and hank it out. And you'd never see that in Scotland. Or, no, or no, it's like, it's like you know, right. like yelling at everybody else about what they should be doing and <laughs> they may be doing it. <laughs> Probably not. That's right. A long time ago, uh, when I was in at manufacturing, I was over at a Japanese company and uh, my friend and I, we were making this part. We had a part that was being defective and we saw what was wrong with the machine right away. And we wanted to tell them, but the Japanese who owned the machine had to get 20 people in a room and sit down and talk for three hours. And they came out with the same answer we had. And, you know, the, the point is that they probably would get it right more often than we do. But then again, we saved a lot of time. So it's hard to tell. <laughs> well, this is a real treat. And, I, and the reason I bought this one, other than it was the most expensive, I figured that would be the best one. Which is probably not right, but wow, that no, probably is running right. up too as it sits, man. Holy cow! Yeah, no, now, that this is, is like gorgeous. The peach really coming yeah, out now out for sure. And I, I would know. like to convince your audience that this is the only time I've drunk scotch this early in the day, <laughs> <laughs> ever. Right. You have a do you have a big teaching commitment with your your role there at Stanford? Or? I do not have a big teaching commitment. It's kind of whatever, which I really like. Um, it's kind of ad hoc. And this is my first year, and nobody's asked me to, and I haven't volunteered. Well, um, hopefully they won't listen to the podcast, and they won't realize that. So. That's right. Uh, better be quiet. All right, so this is delicious. We now have a proper beverage. We've heard about why we're drinking Japanese whiskey. We're enjoying it. So let's, uh, let's dive into the paper. This is a really cool paper. Thank you. Now, first, 
we start with making fun of the title. This is our tradition. <laughs> so freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. You like that part? Yeah, I've heard the song. Yeah, yeah. me and Bobby McGee. Uh, <laughs> right, that's right. Uh, was that originally by Janis Joplin? I don't think so, but I don't know. Oh, Chris Christopherson. Well, there, there you go. There you go. All right. Anyway, that's the first part of the title. All right. Now, entrepreneurialism and the changing nature of employment relations. Right. Okay, deal with that. Brad, this is the first title you like. No, 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 no. But so, oh, so Brad's down with it? The first part of the title, I'm not sure why you'd drop a song in there, but. Well, it's going to be explained. Yeah. It so, will. I can explain that. Is, is there a process even for these titles? Because truthfully, Bob, as an entrepreneur and listening to some of these titles, um, I need more than just scotch. You don't even want to know the first title we had for this. Trust me. <laughs> Well, maybe Josh explains where the titles come from. Right? I'll send it to you in the chat, okay? okay. <laughs> but we actually had this kind of obscene initial chance uh, to send it to our small group of people who are reading the paper, you know, for us. And right. unfortunately, thank goodness, Mike came up with an idea so we didn't have to. And it expressed the paper perfectly. The title is actually last, correct? After the paper's written. Absolutely right. Yeah. And then um, once the reviewers reject the first title. Right. Well, the our little quarter said, well, we expected they would. There's no way it was going to go to the, uh, the review process with that title. This paper is uh, co-authored with Steve Barley, also at Stanford, and Andrew Nelson at University of Oregon. Yeah, you said real quick about this appears in RSO volume. Explain what the heck that is, because people aren't going to know. Research in the sociology of organizations. And as part of our project... A number of us got together and decided to create a 10-chapter volume that kind of acted as a stake in the ground. Like, this is what we mean by this. Right. And so th this is our chapter, but Violina Rendova and her colleagues have a chapter. Uh, John Meyer and Patricia Bromley have a chapter. Mike Lounsbury has a chapter. You know, it goes on. And, and just terrific people that I all admire. And uh, we've put that together into a compendium that makes the statement entrepreneurship has grown up to be a big dog and it's tracking mud in the house. Well, let's understand the mud and how do we clean it? Yeah. And then the title of that volume is reversing the arrow, the far reaching effects of entrepreneurship. Right. And it means reversing the arrow because we've been focusing on how do we affect entrepreneurship? How right. do we make it grow? And this reverses the arrow. How does entrepreneurship affect us? So cool. So that's how the, that's how this paper and this volume came about. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the paper, Bob? Well, the paper is actually kind of simple. We look at this question of why do people support new emerging ways of doing things that really aren't in their benefit for the sake of being entrepreneurs or taking on the entrepreneurship moniker. And so we particularly look at contingent employment, which is becoming in Silicon Valley, for example, 40% of the employees, you know, here in Silicon Valley. My son who graduated from college with a math degree, works for Google. That's nice, but he actually works for a company that seconds him to Google. Really? Yeah. And that's a great many of the employees at Google. Hmm. And that does several things for Google. One, they don't have to worry about developing these people. There's no obligation to pay them vacation or promote them or have regular. The second thing is it prevents a union from forming, right? These, are, these people work for somebody else. Um, and there were numerous union attempts at Google. 
And so interesting phenomena are happening. We're trying to explain it. For example, Amazon just fought off a unionization. The vote was turned down. And they were asking for wages that were actually near minimum wage, which is surprising. When I was a kid, 17 years old, working in an iron foundry to pay my way through school, I just went down to a local foundry and got a job as an unskilled laborer. I was making in constant dollars, $42 an hour. That's incredible. Some 10 times what minimum wage was. And that was unskilled labor work. And it was decent money. It paid my way through college. And the point about that is, is that nowadays, people in their 20s aren't getting even that deal. You know, they'll be lucky to make half of that now. And so something has changed. And what we asked about more than anything else, why do they vote for it? Why don't they vote for unions? Why aren't they in the streets with signs? You know, why don't we see? And what we found, and the paper basically says that in the post-war environment, and we follow the writings of Reinhard Bendix, in the post-war environment, the management and corporations were largely concerned with the relationship between management and labor. And there was this kind of contract. Now, we're not saying that, by the way, the 60s and 50s were the greatest thing. You know, the people that were having this argument were largely white and male. You know, it was excluding a lot of others. There were all kinds of inequities. But in this realm, you know, there was a discussion. The discussion was basically who would give the orders, who would take the orders, and how do we structure that relationship? And the deal was pretty simple, right? Uh, I'm going to give the orders, but I will pay you and take care of you so you will obey those orders. Well, it was more of like a social contract between the company and the worker of like, you know. Right. It's a social you're going, contract. You're going to sacrifice. I mean, you're going to sacrifice some freedom. You're, you're going to sacrifice autonomy, time. right. You're going to do your job. <laughs> And right. in exchange for doing your job and working the factory floor and doing what you're told, we're going to make sure you have a pension. You work yeah, we're going to make sure you can put your kids through college. As long yeah. as you don't screw up, you know, things yeah. will be better for you and your kids. And, uh, and by the way, mm-hmm. we're going to justify that the people above you, they are there because they have some. Yeah, some ability, organizational ability. Some innate abilities right. that, are, that make and what Right. And it really importantly, what they point out also is that if you, as the person obeying, we're going to take care of you. But if you are enterprising enough and work hard enough, there's a possibility that you will become one of the people that gives orders. Right. It creates stability, right? Yeah. The people that are being paid according to a social contract and they have the potential to join the ruling class, if you want to put it that way, mm-hmm. whether it's really realized or not. Well, the paper points out, because we take a historical perspective, that this whole contract fell apart as large corporations fell apart, you know, conglomerates disappeared, and laws were passed in the early 80s that allowed conglomerates to be broken up, you know, the whole uh, private equity business of buying small companies, debting them up and spitting them out was enabled. Globalization happened, right? And communication happened. And so what happened is rather than having some 40% of the population being unionized, it's down today to 6%. Yep, right. And what's happened is a new contract has emerged is what we discovered. Hmm. And the contract is no longer about, and this is the point of the whole paper, is no longer about who gives the orders and who takes them, but who is allowed to be inside the organization. 
and reap the benefits of being inside the organization and who must stay outside and only occasionally engage with different organizations in what some people call an entrepreneurial career. Really, really interesting. And so we, we ask, how does this calm things down? How does this create the same social lubricant and stability that the old do? And we call it the entrepreneurial ideology. It is that you are not a worker. You have autonomy. We are now given autonomy. And you have that value. And you can engage with any organization you want for as long as you want to engage with it and convince them, as long as we have this free market agreement. And so we tell people that your highest value is now satisfied as an entrepreneur, that of autonomy and freedom of action. And we still hold out the possibility of joining the elite because we say, if you're willing to fail enough and if you succeed, then you will start having an organization and then you'll be on the inside and you can now engage with contractors as you want to. So it calms it down both ways. And while contract work, I'm not complaining about contract work. Contract work is fine. It's just interesting when it starts becoming half the working population. My direct question I'm thinking about this is, what does this predict for 50 years forward? Well, I think that's a really good question. <laughs> We've asked that ourselves. Um, there's two things, right? If this works as an effective social solvent, I guess I'll put it that way, a social lubricant, Uh, then you can expect to see increasing and large levels of inequality Mm -hmm. because the people inside gain more benefits. Right now, we celebrate CEOs making $30 million. And by the way, in Japan, that never holds, um, which is kind of an interesting thing. But, you know, you could easily see us moving, in my view, into the state of existence that was most of civilized time. And what I mean by that is this whole thing where there, most of us are middle class and grow up with a dog and, you know, have a bicycle and a car and all that stuff, where most of us are like that, that's only about 100, 150 years old. The rest of human history yeah. is about 10th of 1% owning everything and everyone else, you know, chasing the dregs. And what I'm afraid... So here's the downside. I'll give you the good side in a minute. <laughs> what I'm afraid is that it's just, yeah, there's a good side. So my, my, my afraid is that it's going to just, just continually drift more towards that direction, greater inequality, a new ruling class that has few social obligations to the working class. That's, what, that's um, what usually use, leads to social upheaval and revolution. Right. I mean, this is when, right. this is when sure. heads end up on pikes and, uh, you know, right. the guillotines oh. get rolled out. Okay, so that's the good side. I mean, some would argue January 6th, that's just, we saw the start of that in America. Right. I mean, who knows? Right. Well, right. So the other, the good side of what I'm thinking about is that we're we seeing this happen right now in Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley in the 90s, as you know, was like 500,000 companies, all new, all growing, all little. Uh, now it's five companies, right? basically, yeah. you know, Google. And, and here's what could happen. And this may be positive. The more and more companies try to selfishly gain by pushing people out and having them engage with them and, and push costs out, they are untraining their cadre of workers. They are de-talenting themselves. They have a few very talented engineers on the inside, of course. Right. 
but the broad, how do you market? How do you spell? How do you say? How will change? And what will happen, I yeah. think, likely happen is we'll see a reemergence of they have to hire talent. They have to support them. They'll have to pay them if they can educate themselves. And we'll see a reemergence of these companies grow and become like the General Motors of 1940. Wow. Or alternatively, alternatively, you might see all those disenfranchised employees flip your original title around. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, no, I agree completely. Company. No, we could have social, a great deal of social instability. So that's why I'm drinking. And um, <laughs> it's not a stable situation. I don't have a great deal of social instability already. I mean, uh, I, I guess that was my point earlier. It's like, I think yeah. we're entering into that period already. It where could be. People are like, you know, this is a raw deal. And, and whether or not the remedies they look to are actually going to help them or not. Yeah. You know, that's for not for me to say, but. But right. I think people are pretty fed up. Uh, you may be right, Jeff. Uh, if I survey my children's friends, right, they are pretty radicalized yeah. over this issue. Oh yeah. Um, you know, my like son was fourteen. I was talking to her last night about her yeah. career plan. She's like, uh, "I don't want to work for anybody. I want to be a content producer. So I can yeah, get yeah, yeah, dollars. Yeah. I can just get companies to give me money, and that'll be fine." Right. But yeah, well, you just... also might end up being, you know, a, a rock star or like. You know, right. But I don't think the odds are quite like that. I think I, I'm saying because I'm an old guy. I think actually a lot of people are making a, a decent living and very happy with themselves as and sort of what I'm viewing is the next phase of the economy, which is people just are all independent contractors for themselves. You know, the t- Julian Shore ideology you're critiquing here. I mean, because that's no, no, no. Julian Shore uh, wrote a really good book last year where she looked at the gig economy and the people in it. And she found that people who engaged in it as either a hobby or a lifestyle choice, yes, you know, that they they didn't need it to eat, right? Actually, found it very satisfying, very freeing, you know, and they were happy with it. It's the people who needed it to eat, yeah. In other words, I need this job to put a house, you know, roof over my head and and feed my children. They're very unhappy and feel yeah. they're getting a raw deal. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And you can imagine, I mean, these are extremely hard jobs, not paid enough. Like an Uber driver doesn't have the security of a dishwasher at like the local restaurant, right? I mean, mean, the job. No, that's a problem. Or what about vacation? You know, I mean, that was was always a frustrating thing for me in Silicon Valley whenever we had uh, clients or suppliers in France, right? We had to be sure we talked to them before August. Yeah. Because yeah, no. we weren't going to talk we to him again until right? Christmas or something. You know? <laughs> so when, I, when I think of this theory and I think of what you just laid out, Bob, which I mm-hmm. totally agree with, there's mm-hmm. a big question mark there, and that's the political response, right? right. Is, isn't that the wild card in a sense? That, yeah. I, I mean, we're already hearing pressure to break up your big five that you just mentioned. Yep. God, I mean, the future is really uncertain in a, in a sense because of that political class in the middle. I think that's exactly right. Um, Boy, that's really wise. The political aspect, I think, is interesting. And let me tell you why. I just watched a video of Mike Wallace interviewing Ayn Rand in 1954. And uh, his point to her was, I don't know why you believe in this individualism and, you know, people should only be paid if they have great ability. We believe in the United States that we have obligations to each other, that there's a social good, that we need to be altruistic. And I thought how foreign Mike's description of the United States is to us now. Yeah. 
you know, and that's to me the political thing that's interesting. I have relatives that are Trump voters. Their view of the world is very much an economist view of the world. You know, everything the market does is good and they eschew obligations towards others. Now, on the other hand, my children are very much believing in altruism. They want to be democratic socialists and that kind of thing. So I see that's part of the reason we're separating so much. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and I don't know who's going to win in all that, to tell you the well, truth. You know, I have my hopes. <laughs> <laughs> you know what occurred to me in reading your paper, Bob, was like, if you went and talked to your children or you went and talked to your relatives that were Trump voters and you talked to them about some idea that you were representing as entrepreneurial, mm-hmm. they both would say, oh, that's cool. That's yeah. good. Right. I mean, this is really so I've been doing research where I've been finding that, like, when you frame environmental problems as, as entrepreneurial opportunities. Right. People on both sides of the aisle will get excited about them. It's the one unifying ideology in America right now. That's right. We actually put out the pernicious downside of that is like if you really buy into it, you really buy into almost this this Randian idea of the entrepreneur as the super person who we all have the ability to become and and right and, and we all have the same opportunity. It justifies an awful lot of things. Right. That are not so good for society. Well, that's the point, right? Because that's what the entrepreneurial ideology has done. And you put, you articulated it beautifully, Jeff. It creates a patina of goodness yep. on what in the past would have been reprehensible behaviors. For example, Elizabeth Holmes is excused by many people because she at least tried to be an entrepreneur. It's too bad she claimed something before, but all entrepreneurs do that. She just went a little too far. Yeah. You know, no, what she did was awful. You know? right. <laughs> but this is happening in social entrepreneurship and sustainability entrepreneurship. Rather than saying, here's a more effective way to implement policies that we need, it's bringing the market in. And so only if the market justifies this activity, will I then do it? And frankly, there's a lot of environmental policies that we need to put in place that are not good for markets. Of course. So yeah. here's my question. So I'm thinking of Milton Friedman's yeah. uh, op-ed in the New York Times in the 1970s, where it's all about shareholders. Right. Now we've kind of evolved to the stakeholder. But in, right. in a sense, that stakeholder seems to be a little bit of whitewashing because the model you, you just presented doesn't really consider those outsiders. Well, we, we do consider that we take a different view. We take the view of stakeholders that employees are a stakeholder, that the community is a stakeholder. So we believe that the community takes health from long-term stable employment from the companies in it, and it creates social connections, creates long-term relationships that we think help communities grow. So we think, I think anyway, that this whole idea of shareholder primacy, which was a new idea when I was in graduate school the first time in the early 80s, you know, it's kind of strange because the shareholders are the most protected class of stakeholder. They can't be reduced below zero. Right. They got all kinds of productions, but the employees don't got none of that. That's right. And they can be fired and lose and start losing right away. You know, and the community loses. Part of this is just very, very guttural and visceral to me because I grew up in mid-Michigan. And of the five employers in Jackson, Michigan, where my wife and I went to high school, all of them are gone. And if you drive on the roads between Jackson, Michigan, where I grew up, and say Lake Michigan, where we used to go, 
you go through town after town with, you could tell we're beautiful towns, but the factories closed, half the houses are boarded up. And so, you know, we try to think about stakeholders is actually, I think, a center of what we need to do in the future. And that's why I say, I hope maybe these companies just grow and then develop stakeholders. I mean, to me, that's that's Ed Freeman's insight and the whole driving thing behind stakeholder theory is in the long run, right? that's actually going to benefit the shareholders, or it should. And if right. it doesn't, then right. something is broken. No, something, I, something is wrong right. when a company can destroy value for all right. of its stakeholders, right. other than shareholders, right. and the shareholders somehow benefit from that. that, that that's not capitalism anymore. Right. That's some kind of... Yeah, who knows what it is, but we did, like I said in that 1954 interview, Mike Wallace didn't think of it. He said in it, he said, we are not a capitalist country. Yeah. You know, his is CBS. This is, you know, he said, <laughs> we are a modified capitalist, you know, with government. And here's the thing. Entrepreneurialism tends to be a, an idea and an ideology focused on the winners. Mm-hmm. We need to take care of everybody in society. We need to have a place for someone who wants to be an artist to do well. We need to have places where someone who isn't, say, uh, you know, the brightest or hardest working to have just a good job. Uh, We need to allow for various levels of ambition and ability and be inclusive. And I don't know how we can get to our goals in diversity and inclusiveness unless we have a sufficiently robust economy that employs a broad swath of people. So it isn't allocating a few jobs among different groups. It's, you know, let's all decide where we want to go. And so I think it's important. That's why I thought it's a good thing. Maybe this development will result in uh, large corporations. Flags that happen, right? If you, so if you yeah. think about where you and your wife grew up, yeah. when the towns are dying, think of the generations of children still in those schools. Absolutely right. The high school I went to was a good high school. We learned Latin as a required class. We had advanced physics. We had advanced chemistry. Uh, I, I and probably and yeah, in calculus and all that. Yeah. And now that system ranks about, I think, in the one percentile of schools in yeah, the nation. Is, uh, and and it's gone down. When I when we graduated from high school, there were sixty thousand people in this town. There's twenty nine thousand now. And so you know. When we celebrate, one of the things we pointed out is that Instagram grew really, really fast, right? Got maybe 13 employees and they got sold for a billion dollars, you know? That would not affect anyone other than investors, really. Dark Cup Corporation in Mason, Michigan, has been there since 1960. Employs several thousand people year in and year out. I'm not saying it's a wonderful company or that the owners of it are wonderful, but it's, you know, it's there, it gains community support. They give them tax breaks when they get in con- trouble. Yeah. And, you know, and people get employed and their children work there. Mm-hmm. So there is some value in that. And yeah. I think we, it's been unrecognized. And what makes it get value less is this idea of we should all be entrepreneurs. Yeah. At the same time, maybe we need entrepreneurs to create the alternatives. I mean, I know it's, it's hard to say. I mean, I remember during the dot-com boom, you know, we all were like thinking, man, Jeff yeah. Bezos, like, is great you know he's figured out this genius idea and and, you know google like they've improved like alta vista this is fantastic they're efficiencies right it all kinds of i guess maybe it's just a generational thing but i think what's really interesting about the the argument you lay out is how the 
entrepreneurialism ideology, as you describe it, has pulled society further and further apart. And I hope that we're not guilty in, in purporting this mythology in the podcast or in our teaching or anything else we do. I don't think Brad and I are, because I know we make our classes super demanding. And I always tell my students this, I'm like, I'm going to do everything I can in this class to convince you not to be an entrepreneur. Good. That's what Literally, I do when I, I teach entrepreneurship. Everything to show you why your idea will right. not work, to push right. back on your ideas, to show you you can't commit, you can't get the suppliers, you can't, you can't make it work. Right. But if you actually decide to do it, right. then I'll immediately become you know, your biggest advocate and try to help exactly. you. Like, that, that still doesn't mean you're going to succeed. It's likely going to be, it's, it's going to be difficult. I think, That's right. I think no. universities bear a little bit of the, uh, well, maybe not even a little bit, I think Scott Shane has pointed this out, and I know Howard yes, Alton is as well. Like we bear a bit of the responsibility for this. Um, well, students like the story that they can all be entrepreneurs. Let's tell them that. Yeah, all um, and Yang point out that um, you know that uh, what we teach them doesn't match the environment that we're sending them into. Yeah. You know, and no, I think you, you. I think you teach it exactly what I do. Because the fact of the matter is that if you start a company, four times out of five, maybe even you know. Nine times out of 10, you're not going to make it. And right. some of those not making it means bankruptcy and losing your house. And so that's let's not do good. that. Let's focus on affordable risk. Like I always teach them that. I'm like, like, you don't want, right. do not bet your parents' house, the house on your like app. Like, <laughs> Sarah Zathy wrote if about that. If it was going to work, there'd be people yeah. knocking at the door with money. Trust me. Yeah. Yeah. And if they're not, your app's not going to work anyway. So don't do that. <laughs> that's what I love about the, the effectuation people, you know, they actually talk about that. Well, they did a, they did a cute study. They did a wonderful study. Actually, they found that experienced entrepreneurs acted to minimize risk more than anything else. They didn't bet the farm. They okay, bet what they surprised. could afford. Who wasted 4 million bucks on that study? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't cost 4 million bucks, Brad. No, but I mean, they, but Brad, there's all these other narratives. Like, I mean, I know you say big surprise but i mean it's like there's all these other narratives like the lean startup or whatever it's like look just pivot it'll be fine right no exactly right and brad, and brad oh sorry didn't mean you're no, that's not what expert entrepreneurs do they aren't right. like those goofuses who just do right. stuff and hope for the best right like, that's why i teach it and it's why i'm glad you do and i'm sure it's what brad is saying i was so an entrepreneur i built a company you know part of the reason for writing this was just that and the reason vcs are funding it you know, a lot of what is being spread around, and I'm not going to blame anybody, you know, but a lot of spreading around is, is kind of hooey because, you know, nobody that I know ever who was running a company or investing in company was first going to look at your technology and your prototype. When I was investing, I wanted to see the size of your market, how new it was, and how fast it was growing. Yeah. If you identify this really cool market niche that's growing really, really fast, we're talking business at that point. That's right. And yeah. I want to talk to the executive team. I want to know who's there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Who's, who's, who knows how to drag money out of that? Right. And I, I try to explain, VCs aren't trying to find some incapable people that they will coach. They're trying, <laughs> you know, right. They're, they're trying to, they're hoping John Rockefeller walks in with <laughs> oil all over him saying, hey, I found this in a field upstreet. You that's want right. a piece of this? That's right. You know, and that's what you're looking for. And that's why in this paper, we make the point, the organizational act of entrepreneurship, where you create a company to make a profit is different than the ideological meanings we take from that and then yeah. apply in other social realms. That's yeah. awesome. I, don't, I, th I can't think of a better place to conclude, Bob. That's, okay, that's really man. cool. Congratulations on the paper. 
So once again, the paper is called Freedom is Just Another Word for Nothing Left to Lose. Uh, <laughs> uh, Entrepreneurialism <laughs> and the Changing Nature of Employment Relations. Uh, and it's part of a volume called Reversing the Error, the Far-Reaching Effects of Entrepreneurship. Again, our guest is Bob Everhart, the Director for Research on Entrepreneurship and Society at the Graduate Business School at Stanford University. Thanks for joining us, Bob. Hey, it was a lot of fun, Jeff, and very uh, great to meet you. Nice and, to meet you. Uh, and Bob, my takeaway is for entrepreneurs is this focus on stakeholders. This is no joke. This is not something to take lightly. You really need to understand that pretty much as well as your customers. I think if you take this perspective, you actually can create a competitive advantage. I, um, I think that's exactly right. If people know the difference between actual entrepreneurship and the ideological nature of entrepreneurship, they can focus on what they need to actually do and yep. take the appropriate risks. Yeah, um, I totally agree. You know. So like I said, I'll leave you with this. Uh, I, I tell my students, I ran an entrepreneurial company for seven years and I had one good night's sleep and that was the night I sold it. <laughs> well, there you go. For those of you that are getting ready to start your company, you can look forward to a good night's sleep sometime. <laughs> Run yourself. Very right. far away in the future or you could Upon just- your exit. Or you could just drive, to, drive for Uber. Uh, <laughs> not get any sleep at all. Uh, hey, we'll see you guys later. and. Uh, Thanks, Bob. Hey, Bob. Well, that was uh, Creative Distillation. Thank you for joining us. If you enjoyed the podcast, brought to you by the Deming Center for Entrepreneurship at Leeds School of Business, uh, hit the subscribe button on wherever you purchase, listen, acquire, whatever you do with your podcast. Click subscribe or leave a review or pass this on to someone else. It really helps. Uh, once again, my name is Jeff York, Research Director at the Deming Center for Entrepreneurship. Joined by... I'm Brad Warner. And by the way, if you'd like to ask Jeff or I a question or oh, we yeah. can ask any of our... Uh, guests a question. Our email address is cdpodcast at colorado.edu. We'd love to hear from you and we'd answer your questions um, on our next show. So great seeing you. Great seeing you, Jeff, Joel, Bob. Thank you very much. Great to see you, Bob. Take care. Take it easy, guys. Leave you now. Bye-bye. Later. Bye-bye.